0: Hey, it's uh, great to be here, and uh, I don't think too many of you will know who we are. Um, this morning, what we're going to do is, um, we're gonna, you're going to read and listen at the same time. I know. Um, so this is on, eh? Okay, so that's who we are. What we've been doing for a long time is trying to develop Christian leadership. And we do it amongst young people who are deemed to be at risk. And so you can see various countries that we work in. Um, so we have 20 discipleship homes spread over seven countries. And we look after full-time, I don't know, about 300 young people, something like that. Um, and so our aim is, has always been to try and develop At risk young people. And so some of our girls are at risk to being sex trafficked. Some of the boys, in more extreme cases, are at risk to becoming child soldiers. Um, And and now we're kicking off in Honduras, and a lot of those boys are at risk to becoming gangsters um, for some of the worst gangs in the world. And so our aim has always been, or our MO, if you like, is we try not to use missionaries. We work as hard as we can not to use missionaries, even though we were missionaries in Thailand for 12 years. And it's not because missionaries are no good, but our aim is, tr- is to try and partner in with the local Christian people within those countries so that they can do as much of the work as possible while I stay in Christchurch. And... Um, and overall, it works really well. And there are some places where you need to have missionaries, but um, we we really, really try not to. So uh, uh, just about all of our work is indigenous run. And of course, um, we ticky tour over to these countries and visit and monitor and make sure things are going well. Well, I'm gonna show you these pictures at the same time, and you're gonna see them in a loop. So it's not like you're just gonna see the, the picture once. Um, when I talk about economic poverty, what I'm meaning is, is that uh, it's not the same sort of definition as what one would use in New Zealand. Economic poverty, in my books, is you can't get out of the poverty rut unless somebody gives you a handout. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about Poverty. And so an example, we work with young girls who are at risk of being sex trafficked from an area called Mashirabad. Mashirabad is, is in in West Bengal state. The capital of West Bengal state is Kolkata in India. There's about four and a half million uh, um, farmers in Mashirabad itself and... Just about all of them are landless people. The land that they farm is owned by the wealthier city dwellers. And so when these farmers, when when they're about to harvest their crop, the landowners from far away will drive to their farm and watch them as they divvy up the rice to make sure that they don't get cheated by the farmer. And so these farmers, that's how they pay their rent is by giving the owner of the land at least half of the rice crop. And if you have a year where things don't go well or it floods or whatever it is, and if the farmer has to borrow money to pay for fertilizer or pay for irrigation or whatever it is, the... the, Interest rate is somewhere between 40 and 50% per annum. So you're kind of economically stuffed. Um, And then, of course, as you may know, some of these farmers, they become so depressed and so down, they commit suicide. But that's okay for the money lender because um, his family just inherit the debt. And when mum dies, the kids inherit the debt. And so they are forever in in, um, the claws of the money lenders. And so we have girls from that sort of situation. They live in mud houses, and there can be a lot of people living in the house. So, So people end up literally just sleeping outside. There are no toilets. They walk off into the bush to do number ones and number twos. And the problem with that is, is that sometimes um, if girls are doing that, they can be raped. It's great life. So, that's when, I, so when I talk about economic poverty, that's what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's at a level that pretty much New Zealanders can't really comprehend. And so we have one girl and her dad is dead and her mum, she works for somebody else harvesting the rice. She has work for only two months of the year, so how can the family survive? Well, men will come around and offer to take their daughter to Kolkata to find work, and they end up being sex trafficked. Or if if mum can afford to pay the dowry, because the parents, the girl's parents pay, then um, the the girl gets married to this new family the new family may tra- treat her like she's kind of like a semi-slave if she doesn't like it if she hates it a- and the husband decides to divorce her because her mother-in-law is not happy or whatever it may be um, then then the girl goes back to her fano again and says oh listen um um, I've got divorced, they don't want me anymore. And sometimes her parents will say, well, we paid the dowry. We pay. We paid megabucks so that you could get married. So what's she going to do for a job? Yeah, she ends up being sex trafficked. And so we have a number of girls who, who showed all the signs of being trafficked, but we got them ahead of time. Um, and so... What, what we kind of find is, is this, this, this idea that um, in so many of the countries that we work in, the wealthy kind of, they kind of hoard opportunity. A- and, the, and the power and the money is in the hands of a few. We've been working in Myanmar for around... Um, 20-odd years now, maybe 25 years now, at Burma. And from 1948 up until today, they've only had six years of democracy. Um, And for the rest of that time, the people have been under the thumb of the army. And, And let me tell you, in Myanmar, the country is controlled by a handful of families. And then the handful of families who have the money and who run the army... That, that handful of families, they have a whole lot of cronies who work for them. And the cronies get well paid as well. And then the cronies have sub-cronies. And so that, and so there's this system where there's a few people controlling the whole country. Um, I'll go back up and I'll let you look at this all over again. Um, and so... Uh, <coughs> army, of course, w- there was a coup d'etat in February of 2021. You might know about that. The, the lady who was running Myanmar, Do Aung San Suu Kyi, was her name. She was a Nobel um, Peace Prize laureate. And uh, of course, she got arrested. And she got arrested for, wait for it, because it's pretty bad. She had an illegal walkie-talkie. And um, then the government decided, the army then decided, well, now that we've changed the judiciary and we've kicked out all of the good judges who are telling the truth and we've brought our boys in to, to be the judges, um, we'll also trump up charges on fraud and corruption and, and so at the age of 77, she gets to spend the next 33 years in prison. Great, eh? And so... Uh, These people, this this handful of people control 60 million others. And the people in the country are distraught. And so there's been many people killed. Uh, uh, Thousands and thousands have fled over the border into India. The people are bombed from the sky and their villages are burnt from the ground and they have nowhere to go. Uh, they use torture and rape as a type of weapon to keep the people um, uh, under, their, under their power. And so, again, there is this type of um, hoarding of opportunity. When COVID hit, it was particularly bad, of course, in a country like that. There was a massive short of oxygen, you know, oxygen tanks. Well, who gets it? Not the people, the army, the soldiers get it. The soldiers do not represent or help the local people in any way. They are disdained. And if they had elections tomorrow, the democracy parties would probably get 99% of the votes, literally. And they are meant to be having elections soon. Well, good luck with that. And so um, I'll show you this particular boy. He's one of our lads. Um, His name is Van. And when he was 16, walking along the road, he got busted by some Burmese police or army. They took him away, and they said that, You're an insurgent, and you've been committing crimes, and therefore you're going to have to go off to jail. Of course, he's never seen a judge. Um, he's been in prison now for about a year and a half, he hopes to become a pastor, but he's just locked away, and now he's 17 and a half years of age, and he's just wasting away in prison, but you know, hopefully he's learning lessons at the same time as he as he lives there, this is taken from inside the prison, a, a, a phone was sneaked in, and so in no way do, do many of the people who hold the power represent or care for the majority? And so, again, we have this idea of the hoarding of opportunity. And, and we see continuously in Scripture, in Old Testament, all the time, the idea that, um, you can see it there, some demand um, gifts, the judge accepts bribes, the powerful dictate what they desire. It's exactly right. And they all conspire together. You see, it's hard for us to understand that in here in New Zealand because we're one of the top three least corrupt countries in the world. It's hard for us to understand that. But this has always been the way for so many um, And again, your rulers are rebels. They're partners with thieves. They all love bribes and they chase after gifts. They don't defend the cause of, you know, the fatherless and the widowed and those who are at risk to trafficking, etc. They don't care about them. Um, And so we, we see this term that is used by Oxfam. It's a great term. I really like this term, this idea of opportunity hoarding. It's kind of a strange term, eh? Um, but it's where the powerful and, elite, and the elite, they can rub shoulders with others who come from their, their class and their society so that they can continue to hold on to power. Um, and this happens time and time again. As an example, in Burma, just prior to Aung San Suu Kyi and her people taking hold of the government when they were, they were voted in, the army um, set up the constitution in such a way that regardless of what um, party controlled government, the army would have 25% of um, the seats in parliament. By having 25% of the seats in Parliament where they could stick all their cronies and all their little mates in, in, into those positions, the Constitution could never be changed. And so the uh, Democrats wanting to change Constitution, it would not be possible. They couldn't do it. And also, it was decided by the army that they would always control the Ministry of Defence and they would always control the Ministry of Interior. So, what? Burma is rich in oil and gas and and mining and minerals and diamonds and opals, etc. And it all goes through the hands of the Ministry of Interior. So, they're always looking after themselves. And so, in fact, the army can virtually be independent from the government because they're making so much money on the sale of these items. Um, and so we have this picture of opportunity hoarding, where a wealthy, powerful group of people, and often not very particularly big, they take control of public expenditure, etc. And so these guys, go- we've seen it in Thailand for years. You know, we had a, we had a prime minister in Thailand, his name was Chinnawat Thaksin, he was a billionaire, he owned Manchester City for a while. And Chinnawat he got. He had to flee the country because the army was going to take over and they're going to put him in prison. So you know what? Just managed to get out of the country. So what does he do? Well, that's easy. He just gets his sister, and she becomes the prime minister. And then eventually, she gets kicked out in a coup d'état by the army. Well, what do you do? Now his daughter is the head of the political party and may well be the prime minister in a year or two. So you have these families, these little fiefdoms who run everything. And this is, this is so very, very common for us. Um, and so what does it, wh- why am I telling you all this? Because what we're trying to do is break down opportunity hoarding. And you do that by working with people who can't rub shoulders with the powerful and the elite. And so... Um, that house there in Cambodia is the house where one of our boys grew up. And now he works for an NGO helping people who don't get sex trafficked. So he came to our house years ago, and uh, he now works for that organisation. Well, that's his house. And so we're trying to develop poor people so that they can become people who can change society. So what... It, so. What I want to do now is just give you some examples of what we've been doing over the last 30 odd years. Um, this girl here with the glasses, her name is Jinjin. Jin. And Jinjin Jin is a Shan girl. She's a Shan Buddhist girl from Myanmar. We got her when she was 14. We didn't know she was this smart. She's super smart. Her parents were about to pull her out of school because they couldn't afford to keep her at school. And so her dad uh, was a corporal in the Burmese army. Not a great job. And mum was a housewife. We got her. And then she came to our place and, and she became a Christian because she was a Buddhist. She became a Christian, etc. cetera. Um, and then at year 10... She sat the national board exams for the whole country, and somewhere between um, 500 and 700,000 people sit the national board exams each year. Some people have sat it 10 times, and they still haven't passed, because it's super hard. She came in the top 30 in the country, and so at the age of 16, she started med school in Burma, so now she's a doctor, and... Um, she couldn't get a scholarship to a study because she'd become a Christian, and they weren't going to give it, they weren't going to give scholarships to Christians. Um, she's a great girl; she's an excellent girl, and um, she's playing her part in fighting against the government now. So she won't work for any government institution within within Myanmar. She won't do it. Um, she still practices medicine, but will do it privately, etc. She will not cooperate with the government. Um, and, and so remember what poverty is it, it's pulling people out of a rut of poverty, otherwise, they can't get out. Otherwise, they just can't. They, they're stuck in it. Um, we have another girl who, um, a Thai girl, who. When she was a kid, they were so she grew up in the third poorest province out of seventy-two in Thailand. She was so poor when she was a kid. Of course, she had no toys. She had good parents, but no toys. Um, she'd make she'd make dolls out of bits of um, newspaper if she could find newspaper, and then she would commonly eat dirt. And she could say, "Well, you don't want to eat that sort of dirt because that dirt's dirty." But that sort of dirt there—it's kind of porous, and and that can actually taste quite nice. And and so we got her when she was quite—she was older; she was about sixteen. And now she has a double degree: she has a degree in theology and a degree in teaching science. Um, And so uh, she now helps to run our whole Thai work. And her older brother—we got him when he was twelve, and he now has a PhD in biology. And um, a, a really good guy. Very solid. He's now the guy who runs our work in Thailand. And so there's just a whole series of these people. Um, he otherwise probably would have ended up working in a factory or in a, um, a building site in Bangkok somewhere. And, and then we have this fella here. Interesting story. His name is Sushil Nepali. Because his last name is Nepali, you know what particular caste he comes from. And he, he's from a, a caste that f- he, he is a body. And the bodies are thought of as being the untouchables of the untouchables. Well, now he's a medical doctor. Cool, hey. And um, so he came to us when he was 12. And just went through the system with us, and he tried to get into med school at Tribhuvan University in in Nepal, but to to get into Tribhuvan you have to be like so 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 smart. It's just amazing. Um, so you know if if Christchurch was in was in. Um, Nepal, maybe one kid in the whole of Christchurch would get into Tribugan. Um And so he, one time he was at a church and he went up the front to get prayer. The pastor didn't know who he was. And the pastor said to him, oh, i got a prophecy for you. I believe that you're going to become a medical doctor and you're going to go to, you're going to study it in a hot place. And the guy's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that sounds good, Okay. And um, then he got into the second best med school in India, in the south of India. A- and so now he wants to become a missionary doctor amongst Badi people. Now, the Badi's, um, the woman have this view that because I am a Badi woman, um, for many of us, our role in life is to become a sex worker. So, so Sushiel is probably... It- I would think, will be the most qualified, smartest body person on the planet um, right now. And again, he's just a a really cool guy. And and then finally, um, this fella here, Vibol, um, he's now about 33, and he's our board chair in Cambodia. And... He came to us when he was twelve. His dad died back in the year two thousand. He's the oldest of five kids. And uh, when he came to us, I don't even know how we got him, because he claims that when he lived in the country village, he was illiterate. That's interesting, because normally we wouldn't take somebody like that, but, but anyway, we did anyway, so that was a good decision. So he came to us and um, he became a Christian. And then he would go home during the holidays and tell his family about God. He led his whole family to the Lord. Um, and then uh, he went through our system and he got to university and he's got a law degree and he's been working for IJM, International Justice Mission, if you've heard of it, as a human rights lawyer. And he's now about to sit the bar. Um, and, But he claims he was illiterate. And that he, he just firmly believes that God led him to come to our house. And uh, he speaks English and Bahasa Indonesian as well. And he's just a really good guy. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to develop. And, and let's be honest, we have lots of failures as well. It's not all good. But but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people who are who are high potential but who otherwise can't get out of the rut. and And so by you guys cuz you now support us if you didn't know you got so so by you guys supporting us you're doing an interesting thing i want to show you this graph the top 10 protestant countries check out 1900 they're all they're all european countries check out 2050 it's true look out the africans are coming look out the asians are coming And look out, the Southern and Central Americans are coming. Good news. That is good news. That is good. And see how the world, the Protestant church has changed so much. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, known as the rape capital of the world, they're predicting we'll have that many Christians. Um, But what's interesting about it is this. Bear that in mind there. Look at the countries that in 2000 and 2050, and we've got South Africans here, eh, in our church here. Well, you know, look at the year 2000. South Africa's there, top 10. Awesome. Um, they drop out, mind you, but, but that's because they all came over here. And, um, <laughs> and, but, but check this out. Emerging markets in 2016, 2050 count up all the African nations. Oh, yeah, there aren't any. And there's a lesson in this. You might not like it, but the Western church has to release their funds to enable, look at all the Africans in 2050, to enable them to do world mission. We have to release our funds to sponsor them to do it. Because their churches are growing on and our churches are stagnating somewhat. Um, And so I guess it's true to say that when you support us, we're doing exactly that. Because we receive funding, our organisation receives funding, and then we set up this whole series of discipleship homes everywhere where the Indigenous people are running the work, where they feel they own it. So strategically, it's a good thing to do. It's a good way of operating. Um, Now just quickly, I want to give you another example of how we're doing that. Um, and so we're setting up in Honduras and El Salvador. I was talking to Honduras this morning. I was talking to El Salvador yesterday. Um, and we're going to work amongst communities where the gangs are rife. Now, you probably don't... How, how many of you have heard of MS-13? Uh, probably five. Five. MS-13 is ranked as the worst, baddest, most violent gang in the world, and they are the um, they're viewed as being the biggest transnational gang in the world. The most violent city in the world that is not in a time of civil war is San Pedro Sula. You can see it just... Um, to the left, upper left from the H in Honduras. So we were talking with uh, San Pedro Sula this morning. And so we're kicking off in San Pedro Sula um, this month. Um, So we're getting the house ready right now. And we're going to take in boys who are, once again, who are at risk to becoming gangsters, of joining either MS-13 or Barrio 18 or Barrio 18. One of those two gangs, likely. And um, the gangs like to use young children. They like to use 12-, 13-, 14-year-olds because they don't get noticed when they're carrying drugs around the city. Or, or, um, you know, a a gang member may say to a young guy, well, listen, pal, if you want to join our gang and be one one with us, and, um, you know, we're going to be your family, Um, what you need to do is here's the gun, we know that the Barrio 18 guy comes up that street every Thursday because he visits his missus. We know he comes because we've seen it so many times. You're just going to sit outside, and um, when he comes past, you shoot him and then shoot him in the face, and then you're one with us. Um, and so they'll use children in, in in that sort of way. So we want to get a hold of boys who are about 12, 13, 14. Possibly they have no fathers, so they view that the gang will be something like their family or whatever, which isn't true. It never will be, um, and they and then they join the they join these gangs. Ms. Thirteen and Barrio Eighteen were formed in Los Angeles, and um, what they became like Five O Ones, like we have in New Zealand. They were they acted very badly in America. They got sent to prison. When they get out of prison, they, they get a one-way flight to uh, San Salvador or San Pedro Sula or Tegucigalpa, and, and they're never allowed back into, into America again. And so in the case of El Salvador, when they flew from L.A. down to San Salvador, El Salvador had just got out of um, this massive uh, civil war. And so there were whole swathes of the country there that were not governed properly. So MS and Barrio 18 just took over those areas and and, and set up. The extent of it is such that um, uh, last year uh, MS-13 were in negotiations with the government because the government's embarrassed because so many people are being murdered in El Salvador. These are the two most violent countries in the world. Um, but they were, they're getting so ticked off about the murder rate that they started negotiating how they can solve some of these problems with MS-13. And, of course, MS, they'll just say, oh, that's easy. Just get rid of Barrio 18 and we'll just look after this area here and it'll be peace because there won't be any murders because we're controlling the area. Um, but the negotiations broke down. We're not quite sure why. But in one weekend, MS decided to pay the government back because the negotiations broke down. So they murdered 87 people on the street in one weekend. Just Joe Average, just killing people. Um, The government got super, super ticked off. They weren't happy. And so they've started this massive arrest thing going on in, in, in El Salvador now, such that the best guesses is that 2% of the Salvadoran adult population is now in prison um, so if you if you were a gangster and you've got tattoos but you gave up years ago but you still got tattoos boom you're in prison for 10 to 15 years and so there's no you don't go to court you just you just banged up in, in prison 10 to 15 years. The good news is is that there'll be some hardcore evangelism going on in those prisons, like big time. Um, so it's not all bad. But that's, that's the situation that we have. And so for those gangs, um, they like evangelicals. And so it could well be that kids that we take on, some of their, their fathers or cousins or brothers, they'll be gang members. But they don't hate, they like evangelicals. They like us. In fact, just about the only way you can leave the gang is to become an evangelical. Um, but if you say you're an evangelical but you're not serious, you're just making an excuse and saying, Oh, no, I've become, I'm have become i a holy roller now. I've given up my gang ways. Um, if you're telling them lies, they'll kill you. Because they'll, they'll have people following you to make sure that you really are a Christian. So, you guys are, are supporting us in all manner of works. And we just want to give a massive thank you to you for that. Um, genuinely, we are so grateful. And um, so, thank you uh, so much. And um, if you want to get our newsletter, what a, I've got a, there's a little grey desk down the back there. And it's fine for you two ladies to stay sitting there. There's a desk there, eh? I can see it. Yeah. I'm just going to leave that there, and you can fill in your name and email address. Write it neatly, please. And um, I'll get back to you. I'm going off to Central America next Sunday, so I'll get back to you this week. If you want to get a newsletter and all that sort of thing, or if you want to support, or... uh, another way, chat to Mike and Ruth about it or come to the meeting after church and we can chat about it there. Um, so there's no pressure, but um, there is a lot of gratitude. We are genuinely grateful for your support. So we've been doing this for 33 years and we expect it. Now we're beginning to see our young people taking over the ministry. Um, so it's not just in the hands of all the oldies, um, but it's, it's going to carry on. So blessings. Thanks, guys.